just a quick note before getting into today's podcast. This is the recording direct from the webinar and you'll note Will's audio is a little muffled thanks to a thunderstorm literally taking out his internet in Byron Bay, New South Wales. But bear with it as the content here is awesome. So let's get into it. Well, welcome everyone to another virtual event as part of Raw Month uh, here at the Mole Cheese Collective. A month-long celebration of the makers, growers, farmers and families who just happen to make the best raw milk cheese in Australia. My name is Dan Sims and if you're joining us here this evening, you're what we like to call a curd nerd and I can tell you we're pretty excited to have these incredible cheese personalities with us this evening. If we're talking raw milk cheese in Australia, it would be remiss, if not near impossible, to not talk about Will Stud. Probably someone who needs no real introduction, Will's impact on the cheese world in Australia is significant, if not profound. Establishing Calendar Cheese Company in 1995, the impact uh, this has had on Australian cheese is quite phenomenal. Hand on heart, I can say my cheese education in my hospitality days, and in particular at Punchline Wine Bar, was due to Calendar Cheese. He's written books, produced an incredible 68-odd episode TV series on cheese, which I'm sure you all know, Cheese Slices. Add to that, uh, there was the Rockford incident, and we'll chat about that later, and a court challenge, all about advocating raw milk cheese in Australia. As I say, what Will has done for cheese in Australia is profound. And Will is joined tonight by another person who probably needs no real introduction and someone well known to you at the Mold Cheese Collective, his co-founder after all, uh, Nick Haddo from Bruni Island Cheese. Uh, aside from making incredible cheese, it was Nick who made the first commercially available raw milk cheese in Australia some 12 years ago and I for one remember tasting it at uh, the annual Sommelier's Ball to where we received a standing ovation. It's pretty special. Uh, he's also a writer and a presenter and when it comes to cheese communication, uh, it would be hard to find anyone better. Uh, Nick and Will have known each other for a very long time and have shared many journeys uh, and experiences which is why I'm handing the reins over to Nick tonight to interview Will on all things raw milk cheese so we can get into the nitty-gritty of what it is and isn't, uh, where it is in Australia today, and what the future could possibly hold. But this is also a really great chance for you to ask questions about raw milk, and my role tonight is very much to voice those questions to Will and Nick. So over to you, Nick. G'day, Will. Hi, Nick. How are you going? <laughs> I'm good. I've been looking forward to this all week. Well, I don't think I like it. It reminds me of when I first met you. I think it was the other way around. I was doing the interviewing of you. Yep. Well, the shoe's on the other foot now, sir. Dangerous. <laughs> so, Will, in the middle of, right at the beginning of COVID-19, I had to have a little mental health check, as you do when you're running a small business. Um, and I went and saw a psychologist, basically because I'd stopped sleeping and all I was doing was working. And that was a new experience for me. And he sat me down and he, the first question he said to me was, so, tell me about your relationship with your father. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm not going to ask you, I know you too well to ask you that question, but I do want you to share a little bit about your childhood and build us a bridge from the, you know, the kid that grew up in England to the guy that became one of the most important identities in the, in the cheese industry, and certainly in the, in the modern new world, at least, anyway. That's nice of you. Um, 
Well, yeah, my relationship with my father, uh, he died a few years ago and I didn't speak to him for the last 20 years of his life. How's that go? Um, okay. I, you, you can go there if you want to, Will. I don't really want to. <laughs> I just don't want to be like that to my kids. I think that's sure. what it taught me. Um, yeah, look, I grew up in post-war England and uh, it was pretty dark and dismal place. In, 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 I was born in 53, so I'm getting on. And, and uh, Britain was just finished rationing. And I can remember things like uh, creeping into the larder to steal mum's concentrated orange juice because it was given out on prescription. And all the olive oil came in these little tiny jars and came from the chemist, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, and it was a time of shortage. So we lived on a couple of acres in an old cherry orchard. And one of the jobs that my dad would give us to be to go out and um, sort of put newspaper around the celery to blanch it that was before self-blanching celery and we had a mm. duck hut and a chicken hut and there's a lot of self-reliance stuff that today's um still around but it was sort of like it was sort of dig for britain farm for britain <coughs> mentality and Back then, then it, it was a necessity and these days it's just cool yeah it's the cool today but yeah i still have a veggie patch but then i was sent off to inst an institutionalized at the age of eight i came from a family of six kids um and uh, at six, uh, at eight, I was sent off to boarding school and I stayed at boarding school till I was 18. And mm -hmm. it was during the, um, the later years of my boarding school life, it was um, mid 60s Britain. It was very alternative, probably why I live in Byron Bay these days. And, um, and uh, basically I rebelled against school and everything it stood for. So, and I spent a lot of time down at a place called the Roundhouse in Chalk Farm. Which, don't know about it, it's probably good. <laughs> but I realised that Rebel Streak now, that, that was developed during that time, and that idea of living on the land and, and having natural produce, uh, and the influence of music, funnily enough, and, and all it stood for, it wasn't just the music, it was a whole way of life that was going on there, and meant to be a better way, way of life, an anti-industrial way, way of life. Um, was 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 sort of the foundation for getting into cheese because get, well getting into farmhouse cheese and artisan cheese because of course mm. they're, they're really closely linked and I, I never realised at the time but um, that 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 alternative lifestyle which is what it was then I mean it's funny to think of artisan cheese as an alternative as something as an alternative but it was really a battle between what was happening in cheese post-war Britain it was all Mm. Are you there, Dan? Uh, I am there. So Will did warn us that uh, <coughs> there is a thunderstorm happening in Byron Bay at the moment. So if there was something that suddenly we suddenly lost him, he'd be dialing back in. Now, Will, we got you back. Um, can you hear me? We um, can hear you, Will. Uh, it said we. It must be a hell of a thunderstorm. A... Oh, it's just Byron Bay this time of year. No, it's good. Oh, well, I'll leave you. Um, okay, how's that? Hey, we got it's you. good, but <coughs> turn your phone on the side. <laughs> yeah. You're on the side? Yeah. Good. All right. Your audio is a lot better than your visual. So we might just persist with the audio at the moment, Will, and until that gets sorted out. So you were telling me a little okay, bit about, about where you grew up and, and how you grew up. There's still a gap for me, though, mate. Um, 
when did cheese enter your life? Did you, did you have a penny dropping moment? Yeah, I had that sort of Alice in Wonderland going down the rabbit hole moment when I worked at Justin LeBlanc and tasted Gruyere for the first time. I'm going, really? wow, this is good. What, what? Yeah, why, why is, I was just going, why is this so good? What happened? Mm. Um, I tried, I've never tasted it cut fresh off the wheel. And uh, when I found out that it's, you know, when you didn't vacuum pack stuff, it tasted better. And uh, it wasn't just young, it was old. It was like a mm. revelation. Uh, mm. and, uh, then I thought, and then I started talking about it and people listened. So, you know, that was sort of, and, sh- and I think, I'm sure you would agree, it's sort of like sharing knowledge about cheese is, is an exciting thing and there's it's, it's so much to learn. And, and, you know, all these years later, I'm still learning. I love it. It's, uh, oh, it totally. gets you excited. You, you, know, you get excited about stuff and you go, wow, this is really interesting. So that, that, that Alice, in Alice in Wonderland moment was um, really working at Justin DeBlanc and discovering Gruyere for the first time. Nice one. And, uh, after, and after that, I... Um, I got an opportunity. I basically tried to be an accountant, which was actually pretty good long term because it taught me to be a businessman. But short term, the company I worked for uh, didn't really like the fact that I had an earring and long hair and drove a rather large motorcycle. And uh, I really hated wearing a suit (laughs) 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 and uh, and being nice to people. So you can imagine, Nick, you know me well enough. So it didn't, it, I lasted a year at that. I needed to do something else. And I went to work for uh, a, a group called um, Europa Fine Foods and Wine. And uh, they gave me an opportunity, after a few weeks, they gave me an opportunity to work behind the deli. And then eventually, within a few more weeks, they gave me an opportunity to run the deli um, as a separate business. And within I was 22 at the time, and within three years, I had six of them all around central London. So, um, and, and they specialised in a lot of things, but the, one of the things was cheese. And there was a company there called Harvey Brockles that used to bring in these wonderful French cheeses. They were the first people in London to do it. And you'd hop on the back of the van and choose these cheeses. And, uh, you know, it, it, when you chose them, you had to find out about them. Um, and it was, it was the 70s, it was before even Patrick Rance had written his book or anything, the only person around had written anything on cheese that meant anything was Andreas and uh, Pierre Andreas from Paris. And uh, we were always looking, looking and learning from that and trying to make sense of, of the cheeses that we, that we were tasting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's really the background with, 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 with the uh, with, with cheeses. And then, um, in 1981, I migrated to Australia after meeting my beautiful wife, Bonnie, who was Australian and dragged me over here for a better life, which I'm very grateful to her for. Excellent. So, when we actually wrote to each other before we met each other, I was, uh, I was, a, I was a young upstart and, um, you know, I looked up to you as, as one of the old guys in the industry um, I am <laughs> now I'm one of the old guys in the industry and when I was moving from from working in restaurants and kitchens and and discovered my passion for cheese there were two people that really took me under their wing and, and helped me um, one of them was was uh, Richard Thomas who is another legend 
in our industry. Um, and the other one was, was yourself. Um, and at, at that time I was working in London at, at Neil's Yard Dairy and, and you asked if I'd like to come back and work for yourself and Stephanie at Richmond Hill Cafe and Larder. But it was at the same time, uh, we'll talk about maybe Richmond Hill in a minute, if you like, but um, uh, it was at the same time that you were really setting up Calendar Cheese Company. And Calendar Cheese Company has, it has changed the landscape for cheese in Australia, without a doubt. And I don't think that's under, understating it. Um, but I want to talk to you, I want to, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to ask you some provocative questions. I want to talk to you, I want to ask you about the tension that exists with within businesses like Calendar Cheese um, uh, around su supporting small local producers and trying to build that industry whilst at the same time importing cheeses, benchmark cheeses largely from, from Europe. What was, what was that tension that existed within you? Uh, I, I actually don't think there really was. I mean, before Calendar Cheese was Butterfield's Cheese Factors, uh, and that kind of, that did both. Um, I sold that to King Island, and that didn't work out, so I left there and set up Calendar Cheese. And I never found there was a conflict, because to me, I don't really care where cheese comes from as long as it's good, and I think you'd probably agree with that. It's, uh, yeah. uh, uh, I mean, I would prefer to enjoy local cheese whenever I can, that's certainly the case, but I, 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 um, I also enjoy the benchmarks too. I don't really see there's a, a conflict at all. I don't, um, I don't see any conflict at all. I think the biggest challenge within a business, and I think you'd probably agree with this, is that it's commercial reality and uh, what you'd really like to be doing, because sometimes they're not the same thing. Um, yeah. And, and I'd like to say that everything we did was, was driven entirely by um, the, you know, the, the love of the love, love of the game. But sometimes you have to make commercial decisions, which aren't always uh, totally in line with, with, with what, what you want to do. I mean, I can remember, for example, being offered the opportunity to launch Borsan in Australia or Port mm. Salou. They're both industrial cheeses, and I, I really can't say anything too nice about them in, from the point of view of my heart, but. Uh, and what they mean that they um, they provided the means to uh, create income, which was then used for the greater good, for, for one of the descriptions. So yeah, no, I, and that's I how totally I agree with that. Yeah. Hey, um, Will, and I see. Yeah. I, look, I know that you're in Byron Bay, and most people in Byron Bay are a little bit sideways. But do you mind just turning your iPad ninety degrees? That's so much better, mate. <laughs> okay, welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, no, no, that's not, look, I totally agree that, um, you know, some of, some of the work that Calendar did was absolutely for the greater good. And part of that greater good was, was starting Richmond Hill Cafe and Larder and the cheese side of that business really sort of, again, changed the landscape. It set a new, set a new standard for cheese retailing in Australia, a standard that didn't actually really exist of Richmond Hill. Well, that's true. And, you know, Nick, you need, you need to take a heap of credit for that because um, you designed that cheese room. You basically made it what it was. Uh, my, my role was very much in terms of um, negotiating with, um, with you know, as a partner, especially making sure it all happened. Um, <laughs> but, 
You, you, so you, you did you your February. that place. <laughs> yeah, I got kicked out after day one when a customer walked in and wanted an Australian soft cheese and I didn't have any or something like that. And then I tried to offer her an imported cheese and she served me a massive serve about why didn't I have one. I can't remember what cheese it was, but there was something. Anyway, you took over and saved me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Conflict. <laughs> there was there I was putting what I the taste before commercial reality where I should have sort of bowed towed to the to the flag maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> No, not at all. And, I mean, it's been, it must be fascinating looking through your eyes, looking back from those early days. So, the, what, you know, Richmond Hill started in, what, 1995? And when did you arrive in, in uh, Australia? 81. So there's a heap of... There's, there's, that, that's a whole history book that's been lost. I mean, I, Richard Thomas came to me probably around 82, 83 with his soft blue cheese. Um, which, which they wanted to call Creamy Blue and wanted to market it. And I've been watching what was happening in England with Neil Scarfieri and um, Randolph Hodgson, and, and suddenly British cheese was on the map. I mean, I've got to be honest, when I was working in London, we laughed about British cheese. I was working, I can remember uh, uh, someone from Quick's Farm coming to see me and said they had so much cheese, they didn't know what to do with it. There was two-year-old cheddar, and would I help them out? Um, because the milk marketing board, which controlled all the farmhouse cheddar in those days, wouldn't put their name on it, and there was too much of it. And of course, I helped them out. I was actually breaking the law. Um, and, and it was fabulous. We had two-year-old farmhouse English cheddar, but generally speaking, English cheese... Was all of it would have been raw milk? That, uh, it was, well, most of, it, most of the farmhouse cheese was still raw milk. Um, yeah, I mean... It was, I it was before it was, it was in those days when Rance, just before Rance wrote that fabulous book, and Randolph, when, when he first started making uh, Open Mills Yard, he was making Greek fet, uh, Greek yogurt and Greek feta. We like we laughed at it. It's like, oh, how wrong was I? Anyway, he became a great friend later on. But in those early days, it was it was the English cheese scene was very lost. And when Richard came to see me with this creamy blue, Richard and Laurie and explain what they wanted to do. It was wonderful because as a new migrant, the most important <coughs> thing you want to do is, is to fit in. I mean, you don't want to be there just importing English cheddar and importing stuff from overseas. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a gold-plated opportunity. And so we, we named it Gibson Blue and grew with that. I mean, Thorn Tops, and I helped out Fred Levin at Top Paddock. Jimby just started. Um, they, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were wonderful days. And, um, yeah, there were some great cheeses around. And the funny thing was that raw milk cheese wasn't illegal. You know, there was, no. there was a guy down in, in Adelaide, I used to remember his name, I was trying to remember it the other day, who had one or two cows and he used to make a cheddar and mature it under rocks somewhere in the paddock. And yeah, there so was his, raw milk cheese. His name was Dennis and he was actually in Strathalbyn. <laughs> okay. A amazing guy. <laughs> yeah, he had two yeah. Jersey cows. And used right, to yeah, uh, yeah. mature his cheese under beeswax. That's right. Yeah. 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 So yeah pretty cool. We were allowed to do it. I think. I think Pine Garner was in, in those days was raw. Um, certainly, there was Heidi was was being made some raw milk. There was loads of raw milk cheese. And then suddenly, when uh, the, the federal government decided to pull all the different uh, states under one food authority. Uh, they decided to ban all raw milk cheese, and you were around for that. That was after we'd formed Richmond Hill Cafe and Larder. I remember talking to you about how 
incredible it was that the authorities had just banned Parmesan without Parmigiano Reggiano without even realizing it. Do you remember that? Mm. And grew yeah, I do. Because cr- much at, at the same time, um, we started the Australian Specialist Cheesemakers Association. And one of the purposes of, of starting that organization was to, uh, you know, foster uh, an awareness around unpasteurized milk in this and unpasteurized cheese in this country. And we're still trying to do it. And, and change the law. Yeah, that's what it was. That was what it was all about. And we tried to be inclusive. So we invited some of the big guys into the board. And uh, I don't know, it just turned toxic. It was, it was, it was a bit sad. I, I remember we all just walked away and left them to it. And they, they, they went on their merry way. And that was... But it wasn't for want of trying. And the ASCA was actually launched with Randolph Hodgson bringing over about... 30 kilos of English raw milk cheese, which had mm-hmm. to be tasted, <laughs> had to be tasted um, under the watchful eyes of quarantine to make sure nobody left the room with, with any of it in case, I don't know what they're worried about, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was definitely pre-COVID, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that gives was a shit about raw milk cheese these days. <laughs> oh, we do. We, no, so there's, there's lots happening. So... After we 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 we, we went we, we left the ASBA and got on whatever, um, I at the same time you helped me do it. I made an application for uh, to him. So I, I figured the only way that we would be able to change the standards in Australia would be by uh, using international free trade to try and do it. And so you helped me make an application to import Keynes and Montgomery um, farmhouse cheddar in 2004 and another application we made under cheese choice uh, for Australia to recognize all EU raw milk cheese as equivalent. Um, and at the same time, we set, we set up on this, this little battle by importing some rock whore and asking the authorities to test it for equivalent because at that time, the Australian regulation said that cheese must be made from pasteurized milk or the equivalent in bacteria reduction. And it was not at all clear what the hell that meant. It's still not. Remember that? <laughs> no, it's not. That's still in there. I was reading it the other day. Anyway, those applications, so the, the two things happened. The, the applications sat there with Fazan uh, for a long time. Meanwhile, the Rockfall case, um, we imported the Rockfall. The authorities grabbed it. They refused to test it for equivalent. Um, we kept importing um, cheese for personal use. You're still allowed to bring in raw milk cheese for personal use into Australia. They Up to 10 kilos, sneakily, everybody. No, no, no. No, no, no. Very sneakily, they changed it down to one. They just changed it about six months ago. Didn't tell anyone. Oh, really? Sneakily sneakily pulled that in. And and uh, so it's now only one kilo, I'm afraid, but it's, 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 your kids are allowed some too. So if you get the chance to travel, which God knows when that's going to be, you can, you can actually do it. Um, so, Will, and, I want to stop anyway, you there because but, I, want to, I want to take you back to that moment that you just described when the authorities seized the rock ball because that, I don't want to skip over that because there's that iconic photo of you turfing boxes and boxes of Roquefort onto a tip out of the back of a hearse. How did, I know, I, I get that that was a little bit of a publicity stunt and I thank you for it. 
how did that feel? Well, it, it took 18 months to get to that. And it was my way of saying, you guys, um, you, 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 this is just nuts. I mean, we, 18 months during which time the Australian dairy industry had turned inwards on me and accused me of terrorism, um, which really hurt. It was the same time as the, the towers had gone down in New York. Uh, the, the head of quarantine has threatened me with jail or a $100,000 fine if I kept giving away uh, samples of Oxford to the press to highlight the issue. And I told them when we started the whole thing that, um, that if, I was, if they ordered the cheese to be destroyed by deep burial or export, I would deep bury it and I would take it to the tip in a hearse. So mm. it felt bloody good, actually. It's like, you know, cause it was wrong. And, and uh, it, it still is wrong. It, it it still is wrong, and it's rock, it's, the Rockford thing is funny enough. It's still an interesting key in this whole drama because Rockford is allowed to be sold in Australia, but it has not been assessed under the standards that were established in 2015. But something very important happened after the Rockford case, Nick, um, which was which was which was relevant to yourself. Um, the uh, once they were looking at the standards, they announced that hard-cooked curd cheeses like Parmigiana Reggiana and, and Gruyere would be allowed for sale in Australia. And you very, very bravely went out and started making C2. And that was a massive call, and you would have gone through pretty much the same feelings that I went through when you, you're doing something out of principle, but you, it, 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 it's, a, it's a strong feeling. That it's, a, it's a question of do you really believe in this enough to carry it through or are you going to buckle and take the easy route? It shouldn't be like that, but I, I, did you feel like that? Yeah, look, I think that there were two, you know, there's around that sort of risk scenario, because I was the same thing. I, I seriously can remember taking garbage bags and garbage bags that had to be cable tied at the top of wheels of raw milk C2 that were perfectly fine and perfectly safe, like tested to be safe, that could not be sold yet. Because at that point, I was still building up a, a case, I guess, for our local food authority, the Tasmanian Dairy Industry Authority, um, in order to be able to prove to them that this could be done safely. It was so moronic. But there would have been tens of thousands of dollars of cheese that ended up on the tip. And... Um, I mean, it, I guess for me, it, 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 I think it felt different for me than for you because you were, you might have felt a bit defeated, whereas me, I knew I was on a pathway to something bigger than what I was currently doing. You know, this was a part of the process to allow me to get to what my goal was. Um, whereas, you know, when, when they took you down for the rock four, that was just, it was horrible. It was horrible to watch. It really was. Well, I think, you, you, yeah, well, it, it, was, it was horrible, but it was, a, it was a moment in time when I really had to decide whether I would keep going. And I think you would have found that too. I mean, that when you're picking up those, that, those garbage bags and taking the tip and you're a small cheesemaker and thousands of dollars, you know, thousands of dollars. They don't go on trees. So, yeah. Life-changing back then. And now, and I'm sure Leo, I'm sure your your wife, your lovely, the lovely Leone, would have had a few words to you about what the hell you were doing too. She would have been 100% behind you, but 
you know. So, yeah, it, I, look, I still, I, funny enough, when I talk about the Rockwell case, it still can bring me to tears occasionally, so I don't know why, it just triggers something inside. But, um, not tonight, thank goodness. <laughs> um, but uh, the, those, two, those other applications you helped me with were left by Food Standards Australia in the wings whilst they reviewed the whole food standards in Australia. And it took them 10 years till 2015 to come out with what they came out with, which were those, that set of standards which now are, la- which are so strict and so manipulated to prevent the production of anything but hard cooked raw milk cheeses. It, it's staggering that, that uh, at least a couple of our wonderful cheesemakers have found a way through it to make a better and to, a semi-hard cheese. But it's, it's still crazy when you, when you look at it compared to the rest of the world. I mean, like, we just don't figure it. If you go to the... If, I mean, I travel a lot for cheese slices, or have travelled a lot for cheese slices. I don't know where anywhere where, where there's a ban like Australia on raw milk cheeses. Nowhere. Nowhere on the planet can I, that I visited where there was this blanket ban on raw milk cheeses. I mean, New Zealand in 2010 recognised all EU raw milk cheeses as okay, and uh, as a result of the Rockwell case, and you can get any um, raw milk cheese in, in New Zealand from Europe now. And but, but meanwhile, the, the, the um, government authorities over there are still pretty strict on what local cheesemakers can make. But they do make a raw milk blue um, and, and some semi-hard cheeses. And, and I just don't, I can't think of anywhere. The, the Australian dairy industry was based after the Second World War on Denmark. That's, that's about the closest you can get to it. Yeah. Anyway, so, Look, I, I want but, to drill down so, on it though. What, why is it important? Why should we give a, why should we give a shit about raw milk cheese? Really? Oh. Well, there's, 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 there's the obvious thing, which is flavour, but there's a whole, as you know, there's a whole load of other things. I mean, I mean, where do you start? You can talk about the environment. You can talk. You can talk about the breeds of animal. You can talk about reflecting a particular area, the terroir, the genuine taste of place. You can talk yeah. about a way of life. You can talk about how two thirds of Australian dairy farms have disappeared because they're forced into producing milk for nothing for large cooperatives to open export it around the planet for nothing. No milk's che- cheaper than water. Where do you want me to start? It's like it's fundamental to the future. Of of, uh, of 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 cheese of cheese making to be able to make um, that raw milk cheese without it we don't have cred. I mean, I we don't have cred. You you, you and I have both been to, to to bra and slow food and to stand there trying to explain why Australia um, is so restricted on raw milk cheese is quite frankly embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's do you agree with to that? me it's about culture. Now, culture is something like yeah. the reason that the French still allow raw milk cheese to be made is because they value their culture. They're trying to preserve their culture. And elsewhere around the world, it's the same Italian, Swiss, wherever you want to go. One of the problems that we have in Australia is we're a culture in development, we don't have the tradition. That, that underpins and informs our culture. Um, and our culture is post-industrial, largely. It started post-World War II, or almost, or post-World War I, as you say, you know, copied on the Danish dairy industry from a cheese-making point of view. But 
when you say it's fundamental, that's a that's a big word. And I mean, I agree with you, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. What does what does the Australian dairy or does the Australian specialist cheese industry look like in 30, 40 years time if we allow raw milk cheese to be produced here? And what does it look like if we don't allow raw milk cheese, if we, if we uphold or strengthen the current ban? Well, the cut, okay, well, let's, let's start with, if we do, we can have, we, we will be respected around the world for, for having a unique uh, selection of diverse cheeses that reflect the land they come from, rather like our wine industry. Something to be proud of as a nation. If we don't, we will remain uh, a commodity producer. Farms will get bigger. Um, the, the, the reality of Australian dairy farming is that it, it's grown uh, primarily on, on the fact that it's grass-fed. It's unique on the fact it's grass-fed, but as soon as you get larger and larger herds, the idea of grass-feeding starts to disappear. You end up feeding little extras. You know, we get into silage, you get into... Um, well, I'm horrified to say in, in Australia now, we've got, we, 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 we're proud of the fact we're now importing um, remnants of the palm oil industry from Indonesia to feed our large feedlots without naming names so we can bulk up milk. Um, we will only have one breed of dairy cow and the family farm will have disappeared. How about that? Just I think I really, I really want to keep going with that because we talk about the raw milk cheese industry as if it's a silo, as if it's an island, but we can't reform the raw milk cheese sector in Australia without shining a light also on the dairy industry. And the reality is our dairy farms are getting bigger. Um, you know, the average herd size in Australia is now well over 500. Whereas when I, even just when I started making cheese, it was 170. Um, you know, our, we're getting fewer and fewer dairy farmers, but yet we're producing more and more milk every year in Australia. We need an artisan dairy industry in parallel with, with our artisan raw milk cheese industry, don't you think? Yeah, I do. Yeah, we do. And, and we need a credible one. Because the problem with the artisan cheese industry is that when you're making pasteurized cheese, you can you can still make fabulous cheese. There's no denying that. You know, I was, I was laughing. I was reading your your book made the other day and laughing about your comments about English silk, for example. How it's uh, you know, you make the, a very valid point that in England, you know, it is pasteurised um, Stilton primarily from Colston Bassett and maybe Crockwell Bishop that is you know held up very high as one of the great you know, successful cheeses of Neil's Yard Dairy, which sells ninety percent raw milk cheese. So you can make good cheese out of pasteurized milk. Nobody's denying that. But the fact is, if you want cred, then you then you need to have the choice of raw milk cheeses too. Without that choice, it makes it very it actually makes it very difficult to to create a culture uh, that supports cheese. Because how does a cheesemonger, for example, how does a how does a uh, something like Richmond Hill Cafe and Larder survive as a point of difference if it can't get those really special cheeses. If everything's pasteurized and designed for the large retail outlet, how, do, how does a small specialist cheesemonger survive? They don't have, there's no choice. I mean, the fact that Neil's Yard Dairy does sell 
90% of its, its cheese was raw, it's, that makes it very, very hard to, to survive as a, as a cheesemonger in Australia and have a point of difference. Yeah. Well, cheesemongers are often forgotten about in this conversation, and they're absolutely vital. They play such an important role. And I've got this fear that we're just going to skip them. We're just going to go from, you know, um, farmers' markets to supermarkets um, in this country. What role does the consumer play in this revolution? Well, the consumer leads the revolution. It is up to us to explain to the to to to, to, to explain to the consumer. What, what it's all about, but ultimately it is the consumer that decides um, to search out the cheeses and, and, to, and to vote with what they buy and, they, and make the point of difference. Because let's face it, it's really easy to pop down to your local supermarket and, and not all supermarkets are bad um, and buy the cheese on offer. But if you want to get really, um, really good cheese, then you need to find somewhere that cuts it to order. That's not every supermarket. You need to find someone behind the counter that knows what they're talking about it. That's certainly something that's a bit of a rarity. And as a consumer, you need to have, make the time to go out and look for, 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 for those sorts of products. I mean, the great thing, funny enough, about COVID is suddenly set off this, this opportunity for people like yourselves to do you know, that wonderful raw box. I mean, that's fantastic. The idea of that arriving on your doorstep even five years ago, just like that, was well something that actually, Nick, you should take some credit for because I do remember the Richmond Hill Cafe and Lada Cheese Club as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> Still having a crack. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you are, you're obviously... <laughs> go, go on, Will. Sorry. No, I think the consumer ultimately will, will lead it. And you're right. The thing that fascinates me about cheese as much as the cheese is the cheese maker because what the hell make, makes people like yourself get up every day and organize milking animals making cheese every batch is different you know 365 days a year unless you're milking sheep and uh, what, I mean, why do you do it it's like you've got to be really really committed you, you get up at 6 a.m and do yoga i'd rather milk a cow than do yoga <laughs> <laughs> well, that's but, I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously, for the people that are listening to this, they're they're the converted, and I'm more interested in understanding how do we reach the you know for every mold aficionado or advocate raw raw milk fan that that we attract, there are thousands, tens of thousands, who would ask a question like. Isn't raw milk unsafe? How do you respond to them? Well, you just explain it's not. It's probably safer than pasteurised milk cheese. But the biggest problem is then you're in the chorus in the background. You get from you know, the, 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 the big industrials saying you don't know what you're talking about. The other thing is the laws. I mean, the laws are designed, not just, it's not just even the, the law regarding the production of raw milk cheese, but the microbiological standards in Australia regarding E. coli, for example, are, are bizarre. They're designed for pasteurised cheese. Even if you could make raw milk cheese, you'd never get it through the micro standards. They're, they're, they're just a lie. They're not based on science. They're based on politics. Mm. Um, crazy stuff. I hear you, brother. What about those yeah. who would say the opposite to that? The, the, you know, the cognoscenti that would say, doesn't raw milk cheese taste better? No. 
Um, uh, yeah, of course it does. I've just been told to turn my camera around. How's that? that? Is that awful or not? No, no, that's, that's fine. It was pretty good before too. Okay. Yeah, how's it cheese. I mean, look, the reality of raw milk cheese is that generally speaking, it, it's, it's, and that comes down to consumer. And, and, and where, what is its greatest, greatest asset is flavour, in my opinion. And flavour, you know, once you've tasted raw milk cheese, you know that, that famous saying, once you've tasted raw milk cheese, it's like, uh, you know, it's like the difference between watching black and white all your life and discovering colour TV. I guess it's yeah. HDTV these days. But, you know, the fact is, is, that, is the levels of flavour found in a well-made raw milk cheese are sensational. They're, they're so diverse. It's so interesting. It's such a wonderful experience compared to um, most pasteurised milk cheeses, which are very predictable. Um, but flavour is, 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 where the, where the, is why the consumer will, will make the effort to search them out. And, and that's why it's so important to have that choice. I want to get a little bit nerdy with you now, and because a lot of the cheeses that you, a lot of the cheeses that you um, chase and, and love are all what we call PDO cheeses, cheeses that have um, a bunch of regulations around them in Europe, governing the way that they're made, and that's been done, like I said before, to preserve culture, to preserve tradition. And there are hundreds and hundreds of examples in the cheese world, the wine world, the food world, all around Europe. Now, when you drill down on, on that, for example, take a cheese that everyone might know, um, a Camembert, Camembert de Normandy. Um, it has to be made in a certain jurisdiction. It has to be made with a certain breed of cow. Um, the, that jurisdiction has microclimates attached to it all of these incredibly nuanced regulations which help to create that cheese and keep that cheese taste, keep tasting like that. The problem is in Australia, we don't have that. 87% of all of our dairy cows are one breed. We don't have biodiversity when it comes to animals. We don't even have biodiversity when it comes to pasture because what happens with a dairy farm in Australia is, you know, if you were starting a dairy farm, you'd, you'd probably spray it with Roundup and then sow two or three or four um, specific species of grass. And those species are common throughout the world. You know, they're the dairy farm grasses. Um, that's if you're not importing it, you fodder from Indonesia. Um, but, uh, you know, so, I, I often struggle with the idea, like no matter how much we try, no matter how much we do, no matter how much we as individuals and, and, and as an industry try and push those envelopes, try and push those boundaries as much as possible, we still are lacking what Europe has um, when it comes to those traditional PDO cheeses. Do you see a time in our future where we might have truly authentic Australian cheeses that can be considered for PDO status? Yeah, I do. But I think the starting point, of course I do, certainly do. And in fact, well, first of all, yes, I do. But the starting point is raw milk cheese. 
got to be able to start with that. I don't, to have any, it comes down to credibility. I mean, uh, cheese is primordial. It's an emotional connection with where it comes from. And you can only genuinely have that link with, 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 with the choice of raw milk cheese. You can't do that with pasteurization. And one of the scariest things about what's happening in the moment is in this whole argument, you've now got this library of cultures that people can dial into and they can replicate some of the flavors of raw milk cheese um, and then argue, well, we're not allowed to do it, so we'll, re- we'll, we'll, we'll sort of like grab, grab cultures and go and replicate the, the, fla- the, the flavors of raw milk cheese without ever really having any credibility of, of, of um, where the cheese comes from. And that's, that's really, really dangerous. And the risk in Australia at the moment is that is the route the industry could end up going down without yeah. ever exploring the, 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 the wonderful opportunities in a country like Australia. I mean, this is a big place, as we know. It's got ancient soils. There are things that we've got here that nobody's probably even discovered when it comes to producing um, cheese. Things that you would have come across in your, in your maturation room, for sure, because but, but when it comes down to actually producing milk, there's a, whole, there's a whole area there that you can't, we're not allowed to explore in it. So really, really frustrating. And, and the, the starting point is to be allowed to make raw milk cheese. Once we've got that, um, and, and nobody's suggesting you should just go out and be able to make it. it, it I mean, there would be regulations about making sure it's safe. Um, but those, those regulations apply in Europe and they can apply here. You can get them off the shelf. It's not that difficult. I remember you helping me with the, with the European ones and the Spanish ones way back. You know, you just pull them off the shelf. And the, Brit- the English ones are even written in English. You know, it's not that hard. Our authorities just don't want to even look at them. Oh, I know. Um, so, yeah. I wonder whether... Consumer. Go on, go on. I was going to go back to the consumer. Of course, mould and what you, you guys are doing with the mould festival is really, really important because that gives the consumer an opportunity to try the cheese. That is vital in this whole story. And I can pontificate from the top of the mountain talking about how important it is, but until you taste the cheese, until you experience the difference, then you're never mm. going to know what it's really all about. So that, that, is, that, that is the most important thing in, in, in this, is, is, is tasting the cheese. And so what you're doing is really, really important. Mm. Good on you. Um, um, I, I should just, just say what, what's happened. So just, just I fill in the, on the legal side of things. So those applications that you helped me make in 2004, uh, finally, uh, the, the, the authorities had to look at them by law in 2004. And finally, after they announced the changing standards in 2015, they asked me to withdraw them. Um, and I refused. And it was only uh, about 12 months ago that they told me that they were rejecting them. But, and if I didn't like it, it, I had to take it to a court of appeal. So I took it to a court of appeal in Canberra, and last month they upheld the rejection. So the the, the last opportunity to force the Zans to look at uh, allowing raw milk cheese in Australia uh, went out the window in terms of trying to change the the regulations internally. From my perspective, I can't. I, those applications no longer stand. So that's, that's the bad news. The good news is that there's a couple of um, uh, 
opportunities out there that still survive. So first of all, Rockforth has not been assessed under the standards announced in 2015. And under those standards, all raw milk cheese imported to Australia must meet Australian standards. And if today you tried to go out there and make a blue raw milk cheese in Australia, you would struggle because it wouldn't meet the Australian standards. So that's one area and Rockfall cannot meet those standards. So either Australia's got to ban Rockfall again or they've got to roll over and accept it, um, which in turn should create the opportunity for Australian cheese makers to make a similar cheese. Mm. And the second thing uh, that I did, uh, that, I, that I'm in the process of doing is, uh, you know, uh, David Grenells and Rose River um, Blue, which just won the world's best, best, best um, cheese, best blue cheese. Um, world Cheese Awards. Last year. Yeah. yeah, it's a raw milk cheese, raw milk blue cheese. Of course, Australia has a FTA with, um, with America and we're not allowed to enjoy the world's best blue cheese because it's made from raw milk. So, Equally, I, equally can, uh, I can't send uh, my raw milk C2 to anyone who would like to buy it outside of Australia. Yeah. How crazy is that? So it's so frustrating. You, you so say crazy, will, I will, say restraint of trade. Yeah. Anyway, so we will, we will make an application to uh, get the US to make an application. And then the third thing that's happening is Australia, and this is really risky for Australian cheesemakers, and I, I've really got to press the the alarm bells on this. Um, Australia is currently negotiating a free trade agreement with Europe, with the EU. It's trying to beat New Zealand to it, but New Zealand's way in front. Don't forget New Zealand's already rolled over on all raw milk cheeses and PBOs. Um, but Australia's still trying to negotiate its way through that. But obviously Europe offers a great opportunity for Australian agriculture. Um, and uh, Britain, meanwhile, with Brexit, is also trying to negotiate a free trade agreement with Australia and currently yeah. has an application, a secret, a secret application, which was made two years ago and is still, still sitting with the Department of Agriculture and Water Resources to, uh, for Keynes Cheddar, Montgomery Cheddar, Appleby Cheshire, um, uh, yeah, Mrs. Kirkham's Lancashire, and, and uh, a host of other cheeses, uh, raw milk cheeses. To be allowed into Australia, and if they're allowed, and I would, I would predict that Australia will roll over and allow those cheeses into Australia on the ground that they are made on, on, on the same basis as Australian cheese, which creates the opportunity for Australian cheesemakers to make similar cheeses. Mm -hmm. The risk, the big risk, is that it will create the opportunity for those cheeses to be imported, but Australian cheesemakers will be left out in the cold, rather like they're left out in the cold in New Zealand, unable to change the regulations with no push. And that's really risky for Australian uh, cheesemakers because suddenly those, those imports will come in and we will not be able to make similar cheeses here. And that, that would be tragic, really tragic. So it's really important to keep the pressure on food stamps Australia to, to follow through on reviews and not just bury this, oh, it's all okay, we're not going to do anything about it. Well, just on that, one, one final very quick question, then I'll probably get Dan to come back in and um, see if we've got any questions from the audience. But, um, and by all means, um, folks, if you do have any questions, type them up and, and get them in. Um, I often, and I'm sure you're the same, I, I often get asked by 
people who are passionate about this, who want to support this cause, what can they do? What can consumers do to support this? And I, I got to say, I struggle a little bit because it's hard to know what individual consumers can do. But then I think about, you know, we, Coles and Woolworths sell free range eggs, not because they thought it was a good idea, but presumably because their customers thought it was a good idea. So in real terms, what can, what can, uh, you know, the followers of, of mold do to, to advance this cause? Well, I think, I think that mold, uh, and, and, and customers who support mold should need to get on some, somehow we need to lobby the vans to change the regulation. So it's not, it's not, it's really not that hard. It's just, it's just it's, it's, the, the, guy, the people in Canberra have no, appear to have no interest in, in changing the regulations. If you can get through to someone in Canberra that's actually got some common sense and some understanding of, of uh, food, then there's, there's hope the vans will change it tomorrow. It's just the, the, the industry is dominated by the big industrial producers who now largely foreign owned and have got absolutely no zero interest in, in supporting um, the small family dairy farm or, or artisan cheese or, or whatever. So we have to vote um, with, with our pocket, but as consumers, that's got to be the way to do it. But, but we tried that all those years back with the ASCA, the Australian Specialist Cheese Makers, and it's pretty hard to get a unified voice on it, which is, what, you know, which is what's so great about mould. Everyone who's, who's part of mould is there for the right reason. Well, good reason as far as I'm concerned, anyway. <laughs> so, well, so I think, I think, uh, think mould, but raising awareness that it is really risky for Australian cheese makers. I mean, imagine how are you going to feel, Nick, if next week Australia signs over um, the, the rights to import Kings or Montgomery cheddar and you're, you're left there in Tassie not able to make it on the farm. Mm. How would I feel? I would feel like we've just gone a full circle back 30 years because that's where this became uh, an issue for me is the injustice in being able to you know, eat French raw milk cheese in Australia but not be able to make it. Yeah. Well, how, 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 how is it that somewhere like from County Country can't make uh, a blue cheese from used milk that we can import rock hall? Yeah. You know, someone said to me the other day, would I, would I be prepared to sacrifice rock hall in this whole uh, debate over raw milk cheese? And the answer is yes, because it's wrong that we're allowed to import rock hall and not allowed to make a similar cheese here. It's just downright wrong. It doesn't make any sense. It's not, it's, why would we force our cheesemakers to work with one hand behind their back? Why, should consume, why, why, why don't consumers have that choice? So great to see the passion still with you. <laughs> I might call Dan back in, speaking of Mr. Mould. <laughs> oh. mate, hello, mate. Have you, I hope you've enjoyed listening to the chat. Have there been any... Um, any questions? Oh, look, there's so many questions and uh, Will, thanks so much um, and uh, for everyone for joining. It's a fascinating conversation and uh, just really amazing. And I think there's a number of questions, um, which is which is phenomenal to see. And uh, I think there's oh, where to start. Um, there's a really interesting point I might touch on, um, you know, do we, 
there's a couple of technical questions and there's a couple of sort of larger sort of, you know, the questions which I might touch on. And just sort of going with the thing, there's a really interesting one around um, uh, the importance, uh, you know, do you see opportunities to partner up with raw milk cheese with indigenous products? Um, and this might help uh, provide the link to sense of place to counter the homogenous grass and cow breeds. Um, thanks, Anna, for, for, that, for that question. That's, that's really I'm, interesting. I'm happy to have a stab at that one because as a cheesemaker, the, the reason that I want to make cheese and in particular is raw milk cheese is to create, I'm not, as a cheesemaker, I'm not at all interested in making the best French cheese that I can in Tasmania or the best Italian cheese that I can in. I'm, I just want to make Bruni Island cheese and that having a connection to place is vital to that. And that can be done geographically and it can also be done microbiologically. So indigenous ingredients to me also include the microbiology that is very specific to a, a, a place. Um, and in, if you walk into our maturing room down on, on Bruni Island, We've never introduced any molds or bacteria or yeast. It's just the stuff that grows there naturally. And to me, that is a very indigenous um, culture. Yeah, and, and again, some of those uh, conversations we've had throughout the month, and I think Will, you sort of touched on this, is to sometimes that pasteurisation doesn't necessarily allow the place to tell its full story or be amplified um, to, to really highlight that, that the nuance and, and characters of, of place. And you think we're no, sort no, of... I, yeah, I mean, Nick, Nick, look, Nick makes the point that 50, 60% of, a che of, of maturation for, for a natural rinded cheese happens um, after the cheese is made. But the starting point is raw milk. And, and when you pasteurize milk, you, you completely denature it. So you, you, you take away all its identity and then you add back in cultures and, and, and quite frankly, most of the cultures being add, added back into the starter cultures being added back into the milk come from Europe. So where's the point of difference? That's yeah. why the raw milk is so important. Oh, I, um, it's funny you touch on that, Will, and I feel like that's, that's an entirely other webinar and I'd really love to, to dive, deep dive into cultures. You've just uh, picked on something that uh, is, it certainly brings out my inner nerd in it. Um, just a, uh, uh, another sort of question in relation to, I suppose, you know, hygiene and kind of think we've sort of touched on this uh, was around, you know, do you think we need to up our hygiene game uh, when raw milk is being made by producers? No, no, because the goal of every cheesemaker is to make safe cheese, regardless of you, if you're making raw milk cheese or pasteurized cheese. What the Australian government does is make the false assumption that the only way to arrive at that goal, being safe cheese, is through pasteurization. And that is wrong. That is absolutely wrong. That is testament to that, to that rule, right? So everyone wants to make safe product regardless of if you're making um, raw milk or pasteurized milk. And hygiene in any factory should be exemplary. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, 
And I think we've, uh, we've had some really interesting conversations. I think we touched on this, uh, Nick, in your sort of uh, Instagram live chat uh, around uh, that process, that, that real technical process of that. Um, so if anyone, I do, re if you do want to sort of get down, I do recommend going and having a listen to uh, the earlier podcast that we did with Nick, which really sort of, <laughs> really, we get down into it in that conversation. Again, it's... If you haven't heard enough. If you haven't heard enough. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's the thing which I love. And there's a lot of question. I think we've touched on um, sort of a few of these. And uh, in terms of, um, I was like, why can't we get this cheese here? It's very much based around um, uh, regulations, as, as Will you was saying. Um, uh, it's actually really, uh, Marcia, just a you know, great question. What's your advice to someone aspiring to work in small-scale artisan cheesemaking? Don't do it. So three. Don't, <laughs> it's like something working in the wine industry. Just don't do it. Um, you know, I suppose I didn't tell you that, Nick. Yeah. Uh, I was just saying, apart from obviously TAFE, so three, food processing, um, and is it Ivan Lacquers, if I spelled that right? New Venture. Um, is that the, the, the new uh, cheese school in Castlemaine? That's just That's right. Yeah, open up, isn't it? That um, that could be a nice start. Or, or maybe I'll leave those over to you guys. Is there other opportunities to do stages in cheese cheese farms, or or is mm. it sort of apprenticeships? There are. Or? Certainly, in my business, we take on interns and and stages. Often, funnily enough, they're from overseas and and invariably from France or Italy. Come, they come over here and learn how to make real cheese, and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but uh, you know we're constantly being asked, and there's a, there is a process. So by all means, um, send us send us a, an email and, and let us know what you're up for. Um, Yvonne's School, which is in conjunction um, uh, with Holy Goat, I believe, um, is uh, is is going to be a great leap forward. There's going to be a lot of excellent new cheese makers that are, that are going to be born in Australia out of that. So totally tip my hat to those guys mm. for, for taking that leap of faith. Um, but also just, just ask your local cheese makers. <laughs> Most of us would be desperate for people that would be willing to come and spend two or three days um, and, and working. But uh, I mean, that's, that's how I got off the ground is I just hassled a whole bunch of people. Yeah. It's uh, the old hustle. Um, uh, Marcia, I've just put a link in the uh, sort of the, the chat section there uh, with a link to that article on the uh, Australia's first university of cheese um, to put that through. But look, uh, look I know I'm very aware of time um, and uh, to everyone who's tuned in, uh, you've been amazing. Like everyone's still here and uh, Nick, I know you've got to shoot off and pick up the kids. Um, mm. Look, uh, to everybody who's listening, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Will, uh, you, you're an absolute legend and thank you so much for taking the time out to join us in uh, a very thundery Byron Bay. Um, well, I'm sorry about the technical issues. It was a bit of a first for me to switch from the internet to the phone. So there you go. <laughs> but, uh, learn something on the go every day. But um, thank, thank you very much for having me. And, and I've got to say again, what you guys are doing is fantastic. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a renaissance of, of, uh, of cause and the fact that you're supporting the, the raw milk um, push is fantastic. And I think what's happening with Ivan and the new school and just that push, I think we'll get there eventually. I mean, I think we will get there eventually as long as we keep working at it. 
Yeah, I think as I said, uh, you know, said to you early, earlier, we you know, we stand on the shoulder of giants, and uh, you know, for people like yourselves and you know Richard and everyone has been part of, you know, they paved the way, uh, and uh, you know, the more we can do to amplify the good word and uh, and support the incredible work that's been done, uh, it's just amazing. And Nick, Nick Haddo, mate, thank you as always, uh, beautifully moderated. Um, thank you so much, mate. Uh, and it was it was a treat to uh, have a a formal chat with you, Will, instead of <laughs> the kind of the normal ones that we do. Uh, you're, you're okay. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning in for the Mole Cheese Collective podcast. We're all about sharing the good word about the best cheesemakers in Australia. But of course, we'd love to hear from you as to what cheese you love, where it's from, and even better, your thoughts on this podcast. It would really mean a lot if you would leave a rating or a comment or just share it with your mates. We have a heap more interviews to come, so be sure to stay tuned. But until next time, cheers.